0: good morning. morning. I am so excited to be here this morning. Glad that you are here. I was here last night and I preached the sermon and nobody responded, but there was nobody here. So uh, hoping for a better, better turnout today. But uh, my name is Sean Sivels. I am the student pastor here. I work with sixth through 12th graders. I am just incredibly blessed and privileged to to be able to be on staff here and and to be your student pastor and and to work with teenagers. Um, Man, God has really blessed me there. So uh, uh, thankful for that. As Wyatt said, Pastor Scott is in Costa Rica training pastors. And I know that we want to keep him in prayer and and appreciate all that he's doing. Uh, Last week, he began a new series. Uh, The series that we're in right now is called Signs. And uh, it's, it's through the, the book of John. We're going to be looking at, at the signs as we lead up to Easter of, of what Jesus did. And the signs of Jesus and John are are directions or are reflections or are advertising, if you will, that points beyond itself in the moment that our lives would be changed. And so what I want to encourage you in this time to do is if you haven't gone to the resource center, the media center, uh, they have these journals, the book of John, all it is, is scripture on one side of the page and an opportunity for you to either write notes or, or reflections or draw pictures or whatever it is that you do with your journal. Um, but that'll help you, uh, work through the book of John. The second thing that I want to encourage you to do this morning is take out your bulletin, and there's a place for you to take notes. And I believe there's a pen or a pencil in the pew back in front of you. I really want to encourage you to take notes this morning. Not that I have anything incredible to say, but, uh, there are some amazing insights that I've gleaned from people a whole lot smarter and more intelligent than me. So, uh, uh, they spoke to me and I want to share those things with you this morning. The, the title there in your bulletin says, how much faith do you have? And Really, I think the subtitle that I like for this passage is called a journey of faith. Um, And so we're going to dive in and look at that together. Um, I remember pretty vividly when I was a teenager, I think I was about 17 or 18 years old. I was watching TV one day. I didn't watch a lot of TV. That's not just not characteristic of something that I like to do. Um, But one day I was watching TV. I think it was PBS that I was watching, which again, is not a channel that I would ever watch. I just too many other things to go do outside than do that. But I think what drew me in and what fascinated me was that they were doing open heart surgery on this guy. And I was told by somebody in the earlier service that that's called a sternotomy or something, but they, the guy was out, he was not, um, not coherent at the moment. And the, the surgeon sliced him cracked open the sternum. They put in this little deal and they started cranking it. I mean, right there and crank, 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 crank. And that I, I was like, okay, there's nothing outside quite like this going on. So I, I watched it for a little bit there. And, um, you know, the, the surgeon, he, he reached in through the pericardial sac there and, and took this heart and, and was holding it in his hand and, and massaging it and, and examining it. And, uh, I don't know, that just fascinated me. The, the heart did not look like what was on the Valentine's cards. I had not received a lot of Valentine's cards growing up. Um, I'd given a lot, but it wasn't received either. So anyways, uh, that's a different story. Um, the heart didn't look like what I had imagined it to look like, but it was amazing to me, fascinating, something that was, ex- that was closed and hidden that was made open and exposed. And and it just, it fascinated me. The point that I'm driving at is this, is that I am not a surgeon, but this morning, my prayer is that God would crack open our lives and that our faith would be placed in his hand this morning for him to examine and to look at. And I know that for some of us, probably most of us, that is crazy. Okay. Like, no, I'll pass on that one. Cause I don't want my faith exposed. That's a, a scary thought, not one that I'm proud of. I get that. Um, but the reality is this, that sometimes what we say, we believe and the reality of how it plays out in our life doesn't always look the same. And so I'm going to say that again, because I was told after I preached the first hour to pause more and repeat some things. I get so excited preaching that I feel like a a track runner, and I was never good at track either. I told you about that, though. So anyhow, sometimes what we say we believe, sometimes what I think I believe in my faith about God, when the reality of my life plays out, there's a different story being told. And I don't know if that's you or not. Aaron and I went on a cruise this past week. We went to the Western Caribbean or Caribbean. There were no pirates that we saw, um, but it was a great place, Pirates of the Caribbean. Never mind. we went there, uh, spent a week together. The last time Aaron and I spent a week together alone was about 28 years ago. We went to Canada. So, uh, we figured we were due and, uh, we had a great time. My sons had both been on a cruise before, and they told me before you leave the port, it's absolutely required that you do this safety training thing. And so I was, I was ready for the safety training, but it didn't go as I expected. Um, everybody on the ship, went to deck three and you line up the entire deck. And so as people show up and show up and show up and show up late, 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 you start making rows and there's like three or four rows, the entire length of the deck and the purpose of this depends on how you look at it was either a liability checkoff kind of thing for the cruise ship people, or it was to instruct you about plan B in case the ship went down. Um, nobody listened to the instructions. I don't know that anybody heard about the lifeboats about the only thing you really got was this is deck three, bring your life preserver. And those are the lifeboats. (laughs) Any idea about how we get them down into the water or who gets in which one or any of that was not discussed, but everybody's card was scanned so that the computer knew that everybody on board had been to the training. Okay. So again, there's a point here. So hang with me. I told you sometimes what we say, we believe about Jesus and the reality of our life doesn't always look the same. And I think a lot of us are in the boat called life and Jesus is plan B out on deck three. Don't really know what that means or where that's going, but he's out there. And if I need him, I'll go talk to him. That is not what Jesus is looking for in a faith relationship. And so this morning, we're going to talk about faith. Um, we've sang in, in, about it in, in a lot of great songs. Um, there's two other words that I want to talk about as we dive into this subject. And, and it, it's for clarification as we talk. If you were to think of a word that is the opposite of faith, what would be the word that you would think of? The opposite of faith. If faith is trusting God, believing God, believing God, Relying on God, what is the opposite? A lot of people would say doubt. But the answer is is that unbelief or disbelief is the opposite. And so let me define these two, and then we'll talk about doubt because that's there in the middle. Here's a slide Now I'm ahead of myself, but that's OK. We'll, we'll come back to it here. Um, A lot of times when I'm talking to people about faith and and, and they say different things to me, um, some people that I've talked to have told me, well, I'm a spiritual person. Maybe you've heard that before, but to me, I'm I'm not speaking condescendingly of them as if my faith is better than them. Um, But the reality is that most people that I've talked to, and I've talked to a handful of people that have said, I'm a spiritual person, Sean, most of them just have this hodgepodge set of ideas that they believe everything on the radar and not locking into anything, even if some things contradict each other. Okay. And when I talk to students about what is faith, a lot of times I'll get churchy expressions like this acrostic that we're going to throw up there. Um, forsaking all, I trust him faith. It kind of works out. The only problem with that, and I'm not hating on this. The only problem is, is if that doesn't resonate with you, Or speak into your life about what you truly believe, then it's just kind of a churchy Sunday school answer. It has great meaning forsaking all. I trust him. Um, another one that I think about a lot of students say is, is Hebrews 11 one. and, And this is a great verse. I love scripture, but it says that, that faith is the reality of what is hoped for the proof of what is not seen. I would absolutely encourage you to go read the book of Hebrews and and jump into Hebrews 11, the roll call of the faithful. But that verse in and of itself doesn't really do a lot for me to define what is faith. And so when we get back to this, uh, this idea of what is faith, I want you to to write this one down. This is a a slide that we put in after the initial slide delivery. uh, But here we go. Faith is a radical reliance on God that is grounded in trust and leads to action. I want you to write that down, if you will, this morning, because I want you to reflect back this week on where is your faith. And I I want you to ask yourself, is the reality of what I say I believe, does that look like a radical reliance on God that is grounded in trusting him and leading me to a life of action because of that? And so one person said it like this. I think it was Andy Stanley. He said that faith is believing that God is who he says he is and that he will do all that he's promised. So back to my notes here, the opposite of faith. What is the opposite of trusting God? Reality is, is that the opposite is unbelief. Okay. If, if I'm trusting God and depending on him, then unbelief, can be defined as disbelief or a willful refusal to believe or a deliberate decision to disobey in a state of mind that is closed against God, an attitude of the heart that disobeys God as much as it disbelieves what he said to be true. Okay. And so those are two words that we're going to talk about this morning, faith, belief, unbelief, disobedience. But the word doubt actually is a word that um, it derives itself from a a root word that means to. Okay, so let me go back to my notes so I don't kill the sermon here again. Um, I'm really good at that, by the way. Um, So the the word means uh, to doubt is to waver between these two ideas, Uh, to believe and to disbelieve all at the same time to be in two minds. So in every language, there's a phrase that's used to describe a euphemism, I think is the English word. I wasn't good in English either. Um, there's a lot of things in school that I wasn't good at, but, uh, lunch and recess, I really enjoyed those. Uh, but the idea of, of doubt is to be in the camp of believing but also to be in the camp of unbelieving. And so your feet are in two camps. The Chinese talk about it as having a foot in two boats and being on one boat last week that was doing this the whole time. And still this morning, I'm doing this. I can't imagine being in two boats, okay? I enjoyed the movie, The Lone Ranger. A lot of people didn't see it. Johnny Depp, I think he's a pretty amazing actor, but in The Lone Ranger, he's got this bird that he's wearing. Are you with me on the movie? Do you remember this one? In the Navajo Indian, the phrase is that man is in two minds and I can just see Johnny dripping birdseed as he says that. Maybe you don't see that, but, uh, doubt is not a good thing. Okay. Doubt, uh, in and of itself is not unbelief, but because of the things that we do in life, we can allow things to erode our faith to lead us into unbelief. Uh, one of the things that that helps you stay grounded in your faith is to have a heart that is thankful to God. One of the things that we lose most quickly is gratitude. And if you lose the gratitude of where you've been and what God has done, you can forget how faithful and good he is. And it can lead you to a place of doubt. This morning, if you're struggling with doubt or struggling with unbelief, and you've never been able to really dialogue that with somebody, um, I want you to know that you can do that, that, uh, that there are things that you can do to express where you're at in your faith walk. Um, faith is a journey. Would you say that in the areas of your life that you're reluctant to trust God? Perhaps There's areas of your life that you doubt that God is trustworthy or that he's able to handle that. When we talk about worrying and a lot of us worry about stuff. Some of us lay in bed at night worrying about stuff. Um, someone came to me after the first service and said, you know, in my quiet times this past week and my God times, it reflected on that worrying is really a pride problem because I elevate myself to the status of God and think that I can take care of my problems when really only God can do that. And I need to trust him. But worrying is evidence of of being reluctant to trust God. Um, this morning, I want you to get an accurate look at where you at in your faith. This next slide, uh, is, is a thought that, that really causes me to pause and just think about it. God is bigger to us than our small ideas of him and more gracious to us than our views of who he is. He is more eager and able to expand our faith than we are to do it. And that came from a quote out of this book by Oz Guinness, God in the dark. And, and it talks about doubt and unbelief. And, um, he talks about the fact that in Christian life, we're so reluctant to as guys, we're reluctant to even talk about faith, but we're really reluctant to talk about our faith when we're in doubt. And when we're in unbelief and talking about that and searching that out is a great thing to do because the reality is going to be that God is going to step in and show himself as trustworthy. And the doubts that you had can solidify the strength of your faith. God does not want you and me to walk in shallow faith. When I sit down and I think about the the activities of the day and the activities of the week and the things that I'm going to do in the next month, there are a whole lot of things on the to-do list, but rarely is my heart and my mind ever drawn to this next week. I want to go deeper with God. It may be I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But my heart's faith doesn't make the to-do list. And God is not okay with me walking in shallow faith. He is not looking for fans. God is looking for followers. He is not looking for enthusiastic admirers that will be a a cheer team for him. But God is seeking committed followers that will trust him in all things. So this morning, I just, I want to pause. And I want to pray because I know that my words are, are, are empty, but God's words are powerful. And I don't want you to leave out of this place this morning um, with another sermon under your belt and some notes to go with it. But I really want the surgeon of our lives to examine our faith and to take a look at where we're at. And I wanna pause and look at the reality of where is my trust? And God, so if you will, will you pray with me? God, this morning, I invite you to to do open heart surgery. God, I pray that you would expose my heart this morning and show me what I really believe and trust. God, help us to know that you are who you truly are and help us to utterly depend on you to do what you have promised. Lord, you are truly the author and perfecter of our faith. And you have said that without faith, it's impossible to please you. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would give each person in this room listening and those that are listening online this morning, God, I pray that you would give us what we need to live a life that's all for you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the passage that we're going to look at this morning is in John chapter 4, uh, verses 43 through 53. We're going to look at the, the NLT translation on the slides. If you have your own Bible, I want to encourage you to turn there. John chapter 4, verse 43 through 53 the purpose of the gospel of John. He says it in chapter 20, verse 31. John says, I have written these things that you might believe. He's talking about this over here. He says, I've written these things that you would believe that your faith would be solid in what Jesus says. And he highlights the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. And so let's look at it. John chapter four. Um, we're going to look at two different groups of people and we're going to look at faith and And so here we go. At the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Yet the Galileans welcomed him for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and they had seen everything that he did there. And as he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a government official in nearby Capernaum, whose son was very sick. And when he heard that Jesus had come from Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come and to heal his son who was about to die. Jesus asked, will you never believe me unless you see miracle signs and wonders? And the official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Then the Lord said to him, your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. While, while the man was on his way home, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. And he asked them when the boy began to get better. And they replied yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. And the father realized that it was the very time that Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. So, about two months ago, Pastor Scott told me, he said, Hey, I'm going to be in Costa Rica on this weekend. Would you mind preaching? And I I told him, man, I'd love to. And he said, okay, this is the passage. This is the the sermon. So uh, we're going to be talking about faith that Sunday. I said, okay, great. So I went back to my office and I I popped open the scripture and I would love to believe that everybody at first Baptist, when we crack open the scripture, that deep illuminating truth is comes to us and that we walk away just completely different. But in that moment, in that time, as your youth pastor, I got nothing out of it. Okay. Nothing. I was like, okay, what? In, in fact, the only way that I could really describe what I got out of this passage was about six months ago. I think it was, I don't know. Time flies by quickly, but over in front of the high school, somebody decided that it would be a good idea to put in some speed bumps. Okay. And, uh, um, The thing about those speed bumps over there is, is that the asphalt looks like it's about this wide as you're driving along. Maybe it's the rate of speed that you pass over something that, um, you know, something very wide becomes very narrow. But anyhow, driving a vehicle that probably has, let's just call less than desirable suspension in it and going at a rate of speed faster than what's recommended for the area. When I went over those speed bumps, um, I was trying to collect myself in the vehicle. Okay, when I read this passage of scripture and ran across the road bump of what Jesus said, "Will you guys never believe unless you see signs and wonders?" I was like, "Holy cow, Jesus! What's going on there?" And it reminded me of, of Pastor Scott's sermon last week when he was talking about the, the wine being turned into water at the wedding, the water being turned into wine at the wedding feast. That one. Um, You know, Jesus says to his mom, woman, my time has not come. Uh, It's like, Jesus, what are you saying? What are these phrases? So I had to go back and study it. And the good news is, is that as I studied it over the last two months, there is a lot in this passage uh, to to get out. So um, if I can get my notes here to work, we'll go to it. Um, There's two completely different audiences in this passage of scripture. And the first one we're going to look at is the Galileans. Um, the Galileans were the people obviously of Galilee. If you don't know this, Jesus was from Galilee. The first group of people knew who Jesus was and they recognized him as being a miracle worker. There was too many things that Jesus had done, uh, to refute the idea that something was going on with him. Uh, all kinds of miraculous things from healing people to raising the dead, the water to wine. Um, yeah, got it right that time. Uh, They could not refute the idea that he was doing amazing things. However, they were only admirers of him. They, in this passage of scripture, it says that they welcomed him in, in Galilee, But the only welcoming it that they were doing was the circus had arrived in town and Jesus, the freak show is here to do some more things. You see, their faith in him was not a faith that believed that he was who he said he was. Their admiration of him put them more in the category of fans than it did followers. And Jesus um, had shared with them that he was the Messiah. Prophecy had told that that he was the Messiah and he had fulfilled all of those things. Their desire, though, was different. They were looking to, to make him a king to deliver them from the power of the Roman government that was over them. Uh, the evidence of who he was was no more than just entertainment for them. And I believe that, that their unwillingness to see him for who he was truly grieved the heart of Jesus. And I, I could pass over that quickly. And I did in the first service. But I want you to know that when we miss who God is and when we miss what Jesus wants to do in the to do list of our life each day, that it grieves the heart of God. Because he wants us to see him for all that he is and trust him that he's going to do all that he's promised. And so as I thought about this group of people Um, and their unwillingness to to trust him. Jesus says in this, in chapter two, that that he did not entrust himself to them because they didn't believe in him. In fact, in John chapter seven, um, Jesus's brothers are making fun of him. They're mocking him and they're, they're saying to him, Jesus, why don't you go over to Judea and do your stuff over there because those people need to believe too. At this point in time, even Jesus's own brothers didn't believe in him. If you flipped on over to John chapter 10, this same group of Galilean Jews at some point um, at the Feast of Dedication, they're making fun of Jesus again. They're mockingly asking him, When are you going to reveal yourself to us? When are you going to tell us if you're the Messiah or not? And I can't imagine what Jesus is thinking. You know, water to wine, raised the dead, healed the lame, healed the sick. You've had all the prophecy. But you don't believe the signs are all there, but you're not seeing them for what they are. And Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, I've told you, and you've chosen not to believe. How could the Galileans have missed it? The reason that that question is so important this morning is because I think that if there's a group of people that you and I fall into is I think we're more like the Galileans then we are the Samaritans and the other unbelievers of the new Testament. So here's the deal. The Galileans, John Piper presents this idea. He says that the Galileans didn't believe because they saw Jesus as the hometown boy. The people of Galilee were excited about the stuff that Jesus was doing. Like we would be excited about maybe a hometown hero football player. He's our boy. Go team. We're going to win state. We are going to win state. We're excited about what's happening, but we aren't committed to it like he is. And I thought about athletes. I I used the example of Michael Jordan in the earlier service. And somebody came up and asked me who Michael Jordan was. It really rocks my world because Michael Jordan was a key figure there. But Maybe there's somebody else that's a more important athlete in this day and age. But anyhow, um, my point was this in the earlier service. I can know all about Michael Jordan. I can know that he got cut from his ninth grade basketball team in high school. I can know where his hometown was. I can know his numbers that he wore playing for the different teams that he played for. I can know everything about his stats and statistics and about his life. But I cannot know the heart of Michael Jordan. And I can do the same thing with Jesus. I can know all about Jesus and be so familiar that I can talk about him. Maybe like I talk about politics that that I know all the talking points and all the angles of of discussion. But I don't trust him and I don't empty myself of me and let him transform me. So as I I looked at this group of Galileans, um, I think the indictment on my life, the question on my life is, what impulses do I have that shift my faith from a faith that honors God to a faith that is self-centered or self-promoting? I I didn't use this earlier illustration, but here we go. Shake your head if this works. If it confuses you, just kind of know. Anyhow, um, my youngest son has been married about four or five years to his wife, and when they were getting ready to get married, uh, they came and, and talked with Aaron and I and Delaney's her name. Uh, Delaney had known me for about almost 20 years, uh, really about 15 years. Her family had been involved with things that our family had done. And so we kind of pulled away and 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 just was talking with Jonathan and Delaney about marriage and about, uh, you know, just giving them our blessing. And and it was just me and her talking. And Delaney said to me, she said, you're Sean Sivils like Mufasa. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. She said, you've, you've impacted a lot of students' lives over the 27 years that you've done student ministry. You've, you've made a big impact. And she had seen the years of ministry and the things that I had done, and it could very easily transition to just that. You are an important, amazing person you've done great things. And I think the Galileans totally missed what Jesus was, who he was for some of the things that were happening. And the disconnect was, he's my homeboy. I'm with him. It's about us and not about him and what he is. Let me give you a different illustration. don't know if the first one worked. Here's the second one. Numbers chapter 20. Moses is, is walking through the desert with the Israelites. The challenge of getting out of Egypt was not getting across the, the, the Dead Sea and, uh, the, and being delivered from the Egyptians. The, the challenge of getting out of Egypt was getting Egypt out of the heart of the Egyptians. And so as they're wandering in the desert, God is doing, you know, ICU work on their hearts and their lives. And at one point, he brings them into a place where there's no water. And the Israelites start grumbling and Moses is just fed up with the grumbling because they're saying things like, you know, Moses, was there not enough graves in Egypt for us to be buried there? Why did you bring us out here? What are we doing out here? There's no water here. Are we there yet? I got to go to the bathroom, you know, all this kind of stuff. And God says, okay. He says, God speaking to Moses, God says, speak to the rock and it will bring forth water. And Moses being irritated with him says this, you tell me if this sounds the same, speak to the rock and it will bring forth water. Moses says, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of the rock for you? And he takes his staff and he strikes the rock and it brings forth water. Moses shifts the glory from God to himself. I think we, I think we do that in Christianity. When we shift the fame and the glory from what God is doing to way to go me, I'm doing good things. There's nothing wrong with doing good things when God gets all the glory. I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to hold on to it for the next group here. But the question is this. Do the actions of my life point people to a faith in God or do they point them to an approval of me? And if I'm seeking people's approval of me more than I'm seeking to point people to faith in God, there's a problem. And the Galileans were not seeking faith in God; they were seeking entertainment in the show. The second group, the second reason why I think the Galileans missed who the Messiah was, is almost the flip flop of the first one, that they had a preconceived idea of who Jesus was supposed to be, the Messiah, Jesus. They had a preconceived idea. So let me give you an illustration. I think this one's a little bit better. If I wake up this morning and I live over in Wood Creek North, Aaron lives with me. That really works out great that way. Um, if I wake up this morning and our car is broken down, we have three or four cars, but, but if the car is broken down and I need a ride, I may reach out to Scott Tidwell and I say, hey, Scott. Um, I need you to come pick me up. Scott has two vehicles. Both of them are very nice and reliable vehicles. And, and Scott is a reliable guy. And I know that he knows how to get to my house. And, and, and I know that he would understand the urgency of me needing to be here on time. So in faith, I give Scott a call and say, Scott, can you come give me a ride? I need to get to church. I have a preconceived idea that in one of his two vehicles, Scott's going to come to my house and pick me up and bring me to this location. My faith has an object and it has an idea of what that's going to look like. Are you with me on that? The Galileans had an idea of what Jesus the Messiah was going to look like. And when it was Jesus, the son of Mary, the guy next door. That wasn't what the preconceived idea was was going to look like. And so what does that have to do with us? Well, I'll tell you how it has to do with us because there are times in my life. And I think you do the same thing that I tell God how his plan is going to look in my life. And when he veers from that and does something different, I'm like, God, what are you doing? That is not the plan we agreed on. Okay. I have a preconceived idea on what God is going to do and what that's going to look like. And when he veers off of that, it rattles what I'm thinking. The question this morning is this, what is it that shapes your understanding of who Jesus is? Is it the culture around you? Is it the family that you grew up in the, the, the belief that you grew up in that, that viewed God in that certain way? because here's the deal. If I grow up in a a culture, if I grow up in a family that teaches that God is the authority of our life, I can find myself submitting to his authority. But if there's no idea or understanding that God is a intimate, loving, personal God, then I submit to authority, but I push away from love and relationship. God does not want you only to bow to his authority. He wants you to draw near to the relationship that he wants with you. The second person in the the story, the account that we have this morning is this Roman official, this Royal official. Um, we don't know if he was a Jew or a Gentile. We, We don't know anything about him really. That what we do know about him is, is fascinating. And if you read the scripture through and you don't take time to pause, you'll miss a lot. So let's pause for just a moment here. This Royal official, some translations call him a nobleman. He was on the Royal court for Herod. Okay. Who's Herod? Who cares who Herod was? He was a, a puppet King over that the Roman government had put in place. Well, this is who Herod was. Herod Antipas was a guy that I believe that he killed his brother so that he could have a relationship with his brother's wife in incest. Okay. And so when that happened, John the Baptist spoke out against those actions. And so that caused problems for John the Baptist because he ended up in jail. Um, And one night, Herod's having a party, which wasn't a great party, uh, not a party you would want to be at. His daughter dances for him, and it pleases him, and he tells his daughter that he will give her up to half the kingdom anything she wants. She goes back to Mama. Mama says, this is the chance that John the Baptist is going to be. And so the daughter comes back to Herod and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. And Herod says, make it happen. And so... The idea of Jesus for Herod, Herod was tremendously afraid of Jesus because he believed that Jesus was John the Baptist, come back to life, and he was afraid of Jesus and and had a lot of craziness going on because of that. So the royal official serves on the court for this king, and he hears about this man from Galilee This Jesus, that's a miracle worker. He's gathering information and then crisis comes in his life. His father, his son becomes ill to the point of death. And the man makes a decision that he's going to go to this miracle worker. The text doesn't elaborate on this, but just think about this. If you worked in the high cabinet of a high royal, the king, I think you have a lot of options on the table as to what you can do when crisis comes your way. But for this guy, those options are bankrupt on his son's life and stepping out to go talk to Jesus is a serious step away from the circle of influence that he's running with. Are you following me on that? But nonetheless, he makes a decision to go to Jesus. The other thing that's not clear in the scripture, because I don't think you maybe know Middle East geography, is that the distance between Capernaum and Cana is almost 20 miles. And I thought about this. If my son is dying in a hospital bed, am I walking 20 miles someplace to go talk to somebody about it? I'm not, unless I have some serious belief that something's going to happen or my life is in serious crisis and I have spent the options. And so the Royal official heads out in verse 46, he travels, uh, from Cana to, to Cana from Capernaum. And when he gets to Jesus, the response he gets is, unless you see signs or wonders, you're not going to (laughs) believe. What was that? The Royal official had a beginning faith. We've talked about it this morning, a trust in Jesus And my question for you is this. Think about it. When did his faith begin with Jesus? Did it begin the moment he arrived with Jesus? The moment that his eyes laid on Jesus, he said, will you do this? Was that the moment his faith began? Or did his faith begin when he left home? Or did his faith begin when he heard and he said, maybe the point of the scripture here, the point of New Testament theology about faith is that God does not require perfect faith of you and me, but God is going to perfect our faith in him. And if you will have faith like a mustard seed, God will take that and grow that to lead you to action of great and mighty things, not on your glory, but on his glory. I believe that the noble man came to a place of beginning faith when he left home to go see Jesus. The nobleman had a beginning faith. The second thing is this is that Jesus throws this thing out there that's really addressing the Galileans in frustration and grieving over their hardness of heart. Jesus throws out this statement, "Will you not believe unless you see signs and wonders?" And the nobleman has a persistent faith that causes them to lean in even more. And he said, Jesus, will you please come? My son is about to die. And the point that I want to point out to you there is this. I missed this the first time. The noble man didn't even believe that Jesus could just speak it into existence. The noble man believed Jesus, you've got to come with me. So this can happen. His faith was not perfect. And the very thing that the Galileans miss, the grace and the power of the Messiah Jesus is the very thing he delivers to this nobleman. He finds grace on the man and has compassion. And in power, he speaks something into existence 20 miles away that physiologically, thank you, comes to be in the kid's life that the fever passes. God displays his power in his grace in the same moment. So the next thing we see in the verses is the man's walking away again. This is 18 miles. What's going on in his mind. Jesus has simply said, your son will live. And he's believed in this journey of faith. He's continuing. Where are you at in your journey of faith? Has Jesus told you things? that you've began to doubt in the dark because the situations around you have changed that that what you at one point in time said, God, I believe, but now you've got a foot in both camps saying, God, there's doubt in my life. I don't know that you can do this. I gotta believe that this Royal official on his way home had curiosity and wonder as to whether what things happened. But the Bible says that when he met his servants and they told him about what happened, that his faith went a step further, that he had a confirmed faith. And not only did he have a confirmed faith, but now he starts telling people about what Jesus has done. And again, you're in the royal court of a man that hates Jesus, but you're going to start talking about who Jesus is and glorifying Jesus with your life. This man had a faith that now was an evangelizing faith. That's telling people about Christ and giving him the glory What faith is asking for is always revealing what faith is assuming our faith has an object and our faith is like a muscle. And when we exercise that muscle, we grow deeper in faith. Some people believe that, that you have to have this huge faith of trusting God in everything from the get go. And that's the reason why a lot of people walk an aisle over and over again is because they believe that that you know it didn't take the first time. This morning I want you just to pause. I want you to think about this. I'm I'm wrapping up right now. This morning I want you to pause. The nobleman had a beginning faith. He had a persistent faith. He had a faith that was a growing faith. He had a trusting faith that he was willing to start telling people. If there was a word this morning to describe your faith, what would that word be? Do you have a shipwrecked faith? Being on a boat this past week for a week, listening to people talk about what if we wreck, what if we crash? There's a lifeboat over there. Has your faith shipwrecked things that you thought about God to be true? You're beginning to doubt. Let me tell you what, Jesus has a boat and he wants you to get in it. And he doesn't want it to be plan B. He wants it to be the plan for your life. And he wants all of your trust and all of your hope to be in him. And he's willing to come alongside you to help you get there. Do you trust him enough to depend on him completely? Do the actions of your life and the actions of my life, does it speak into the reality? Or is the pictures not really match? Part of the purpose of faith is to help us to make sense out of life. I'm reminded of the old Testament account of, of Sarah and Abraham. Abraham was a guy that, that is kind of the poster child for faith. And Sarah at age 92 is promised that, that she's going to have a child when they don't have any children and that she's going to become the, the, the wife of a great nation. And when she hears the news that she's going to have a child at age 92, she laughs. And the angel of the Lord calls her out on it, not because she laughed, but because the laugh was a questioning of, is God able to do something? Guys, I can tell you that there have been times in my life, there was a year and a half in my life that I was so angry with God, that God's plan had not met up to what I thought should have happened. And I was, I was numb to the idea of trusting God with other things. And so I set out on a course of self-reliance and self-resourcefulness, trusting me. And I didn't want to talk to people about faith. I just wanted to pull away. God met me in the desert at that place. And God has confirmed the idea that as my Lord and Savior, He has the right to interrupt my life at any moment for his purposes. And his plans may not look like my plans, but praise God, his plans are to draw me to a deeper faith and a deeper commitment with him. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the Old Testament, the king says, you know, I've made this statue of me and you're gonna bow down and worship me. And they blow the trumpet and everybody bows down except for these three. He draws them in. He says, you probably didn't hear. This is the plan. Trumpet, trumpet. They don't bow down. And they say to him, you can do what you want. If you want to throw us in the fire and take our lives, that's fine. Our God is mighty to save. And even if he doesn't, you're not worth following. In Hebrews chapter 11, the roll call of the faithful, it says that there are some that consider this world not worthy that Jesus is better. Jesus wants to bring you and me to a place in life to realize he's better. He is strong ground. And that may be bringing you into the storm, but he has a purpose in doing what he's doing. This morning, some of us may have never have trusted Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not even of yourself. It's a gift of God. God wants to give you a beginning faith. He wants to grow that faith to trust him, to be the forgiveness of your sins, your rescuer. God wants to do incredible things in your life. If you've never followed him in baptism, God wants your faith to be a faith that leads to action. He wants your life to demonstrate where your trust is at. Maybe this morning you're in the storm and things are so dark that you can't see which way God's going. Maybe this morning you just need to draw near in prayer and say, God, I surrender to you. I trust you that you are a good and faithful God. We're going to have a time of invitation. There's going to be people all around this room to pray with. If you have a decision to make, if God is pressing into you this morning, I want to challenge you to respond.